It's time for a moment of truth with David Moses. Moment of truth is brought to you in part by APTN, Aboriginal People's Television Network. Gano, Sego, Ani, Bojo, Kwekwe, Tanzi. Good morning and welcome to Moment of Truth with David Moses. I'm Caroline O'Neill filling in today for David out of our Ottawa studio. We have two guests chatting with us today. A team member from First Nations Caring Society will join us later today to give us an update on how Hava Heart Day will be marked with this week's unfortunate weather. But first, we are joined by Ron McCluster. Ron McCluster is the Executive Director of Truth, Reconciliation, and Indigenization at Algonquin College here in Ottawa. Algonquin College recently opened its Dare District, which includes an Indigenous Commons and an Institute for Indigenization. But Indigenous culture, tradition, and knowledge is featured across the university and in its architecture. Ron, thank you so much for taking the time. Miigwech, thanks for taking the time to chat with us today. Oh, well, thank you so much for the invitation. We're always happy to have you. Ron, you were generous enough to actually give Element FM a tour of the D.A.R.E. District last year. But we have listeners here who are based in both Ottawa and Toronto who might not have had the chance to see the space. So can you start off by talking to us about the district? Sure. First, I would just like to recognize the work that you guys are doing with your radio station. I know that folks in our communities are very impressed with the content that they're hearing. Um, so, yes, I, I'm more than happy to talk about the D.A.R.E. District in, in broad terms. Uh, the, billion, uh, the, the building is about a $45 million project and approximately $5.5 million uh, of that entire asset has been focused on uh, Indigenous culture, uh, placemaking, and ensuring that Indigenous identity is uh, pushed into that space. Uh, we have, uh, it results with four or five, depending how you look at it, uh, unique spaces that focus on, you know, like I say, culture and placemaking, where we're offering uh, a number of activities that will service both the Indigenous population as well as uh, the broader campus community. So you mentioned these four or five, depending on how you look at it, spaces, Ron. Can you chat to us a little bit about these distinct these distinct spaces and what you think they'll be offering to students and faculty? For sure, and I'm more than happy to do that because it's really when you look at the five spaces together that it starts to become really interesting. On the third floor of our brand-new D.A.R.E. district, you'll find a 21st century library, the ceiling of which uh, is this beautiful uh, wood structure that resembles an upside-down canoe. And if anybody is familiar with the local Anishinaabe culture, they'll know how important uh, canoes and uh, birch canoes and the waterways are important to the specific communities. Uh, inside that space, there's a raised platform that will focus on... Um, basically like a speaker's corner type space uh, featuring elders and traditional knowledge. When we uh, were looking at how to include an Indigenous space within a library, we started asking ourselves some really interesting questions, like how did we store information? How was it protected? How was it transmitted? And how did those answers relate to the sort of mainstream library? And you can imagine when considering Indigenous knowledge, those answers are a little bit different. And so we decided to use that space in order to, to honor, to uh, elevate both, um, both physically and metaphorically uh, Indigenous knowledge and, and the guardians who transmit it. Uh, and so that is a really prominent space on the third floor of the library. When you go down one level, uh, as you walk down the stairs, you'll see a courtyard, uh, an outdoor classroom that was uh, partly 
and gifted to us by the Student Association uh, through a $1 million investment, uh, their, um, <clears throat> excuse me, their contribution towards truth and reconciliation. And I'll come back to that. As you travel down the stairs and you go onto the second floor, though, that's when you'll uh, see the Institute of Indigenization and Entrepreneurship. This is a really interesting space because it um, was a major part of the submission that enabled us to receive uh, the money from the feds and the province because we made commitments about furthering this conversation on Indigenous entrepreneurship. So this Institute of Indigenization and Entrepreneurship is our answer uh, from a physical aspect to that question. And here uh, you'll find a really interesting space, a very technology-oriented space that's focused on Indigenous knowledge and looking forward. So Indigenous knowledge and its application to 21st century skill sets, it's also adjacent to uh, the Discovery Zone, it's adjacent to Makerspace, Innovation Labs, uh, entrepreneurship areas. Uh, so these natural collisions will take place uh, between students and or community members who use the indigenization spaces uh, and these other new uh, ultra-creative spaces. As you walk downstairs uh, onto the first floor, you can't help but notice this three-story tall incredible mural that was a result of um, an incredible amount of community engagement. And that's a, that's a whole other story on its own, but it's all indigenous iconography and symbols and based on uh, someone on a creation story, a collection of creation stories of indigenous people. So they represent diversity within uh, Turtle Island. And that's right outside uh, New Wapen. New Wapen, um, in the language I'm told, it means gathering for a journey. And that is, uh, let's see, one, two, three, there, I guess our, our third space, uh, which, is a, which is a very large uh, gathering place, uh, a space for um, you know, different purposes. It can, be, it can be a collaboratory. It can be a classroom. In fact, it was a classroom a couple weeks back when we had a flood. Uh, we turned it into a giant classroom for uh, students that were displaced. It can be a lecture series. Uh, there's a couple weddings that are being booked in the near future. Uh, this multi-purpose, multi-functional space that is uh, separated only between the courtyard and the indoor by a plane of glass that can be opened up in big chunks to let uh, let the flow happen. So you can imagine being in this big multi, uh, multi-use multi space um, right opposite the courtyard. The courtyard is this uh, Algonquin fishing weir-inspired structure that uh, will feature uh, an indigenous garden, rain garden, um, uh, plantings, Carolinian plants, all of which are local and hardy all of which will be uh, put in by our students and community, some of which will be medicinal, some of which will be edible, um, and uh, we've called that place Ishkadolin. Now, I'm Oneida. I'm not Anishinaabe, so if I'm uh, butchering some of these names, I don't do that with any disrespect. Um, but inside, inside Nuwapin, there's also an area that we call the lodge. And so the lodge is this really cool room that's circular in its construction and is openable on either side. And... Uh, it's a place where we can do sharing circles that seat about 36 people. Uh, blanket exercises take place. And this is really a place for Indigenous knowledge and looking backwards. So you might think of discussing things like the 60 scoop or residential schools or maybe some, maybe some institutional responses to truth and reconciliation, uh, inside this very specific structure that, that is on these big rolling doors and that sounds like thunder when you close them. And then right opposite that is a, a, a full kitchen and a bit of a meeting room for elders. And so when you look at the lodge, Nawapin, Ishkadoe, Kadabin Institute, 
uh, this place, the space on the library on the third floor, which is a name I can't yet say because it's very, very long. Um, and then, of course, the uh, Mamadoswin, the Indigenous Student Service Center. We now have the physicality in order to offer a wide range of activities, all of which that are embedded and enhanced by uh, Indigenous knowledge. So, Ron, you talk about this wide range of activities that can be offered. Are there any in particular that you are looking forward to, especially in this new space? Absolutely. Uh, so one of the big things that we're doing at Algonquin is trying to, uh, trying to define what indigenization means. And in order to define indigenization, we've had to take about 20 months, 20 months, excuse me, and do, you know, primary and secondary research. Uh, we have done uh, environmental scanning. We've done cross-section analysis at the college. Uh, we have an understanding of what's going on in the country, informed by what's going on across the world, specifically places like New Zealand, of course, and the Maori. Um, and uh, we're really looking to come up with a homegrown answer to what indigenization is. And in order to make that conversation meaningful, we have to then define what reconciliation means for us. And so we just had this big session last week where we brought in thinkers from across the college uh, that were that are influencers in their own way, so not necessarily positional or hierarchical, but just influencers because of who they are in their own journey. And we had this really great half-day session, actually it was really almost a full-day session, to start talking about these things. And so I can't fully answer that question, uh, but I'm excited to say that we're exploring our answer to indigenization, our answer to what reconciliation means for us, and then we want to start working with folks who are paying attention to what we're doing. Perhaps they like what they're seeing, and perhaps they're looking for somebody to help them in their organizations, perhaps their classrooms, perhaps they're thinking in a, in a boardroom, how they might start answering some of these questions for themselves. We're not saying that we have an answer to sell them, but we're on a really interesting journey that is uh, founded and embedded with Indigenous knowledge, supported by community, and that is, you know, students and people at the college, but also through our relationships within local communities, and, and not so local communities, in order to have this conversation in a really interesting and good way. And so I think that would be my answer when I'm asked what's coming next and what am I excited about. It's about really operationalizing our answers to truth and reconciliation. Well, it does seem that there's certainly a lot, to, a lot to look forward to and some resources out there to help other people who are also trying to find what those answers could look like for them. Um, you mentioned doing this work in a good way, Ron, and you mentioned the community. Can you talk a bit about how you have engaged the community and consulted with the community outside of the students and staff on campus? I know that you have worked with communities in this area especially. Absolutely. So I came from... Uh, the Grand River area most recently. I'm from Green Bay, Wisconsin, originally. So I'm Oneida from the state, so technically an American, although I identify as Haudenosaunee. Uh, but spent 15, 16 years uh, in the Grand River area working uh, around uh, Six Nations uh, and or for Six Nations. But they were mainly not only the people I come from, but where I would go for help, assistance, elders, guidance, thinkers, that kind of stuff. So when I was hired to come up to Algonquin, um, I was a little bit nervous about that because I don't, I, I didn't, I should say, I didn't have the community connections up here that I did back home. And so the president, who also came from the Grand River area, uh, and I had a conversation where I said, look, I can't guarantee the kind of success in this territory because I don't have family, I don't have aunties, I don't have the relationships 
that I did back where where we come from, and so I was really nervous about that. But I can but I can say with with great pride and great excitement that over the last two years, uh, both personally but also the college, we've developed some really interesting relationships. Uh, some of them are new. Some of them we're just caring for. Some of them we've had to reignite. But we are doing that in a way that is as consistent with an Indigenous approach as we can. Now, I approach those things from from an, uh, a Haudenosaunee or Iroquoian or Six Nations way. And I realize and I always say that that's not where I am and that's not where, um, you know, I'm not trying to impose our cultural values, but I only can bring the teachings that I have. And so... Um, through, through some of those processes and, and, and through some of them that we've learned, um, we've spent a lot of time at Pekwakanagan. Uh, we've spent a considerable amount of time working with folks in Kitiganzibi. We've spent a lot of time, uh, not equal, but, but a lot of time working with individuals uh, and stakeholders from Akwasase, uh, Tayandanega, uh, and of course individual uh, associations or committees that are represented here uh, in the downtown urban area as well. So I can say with, with a lot of confidence that um, the, 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 the area that I focused on the most is making sure that um, as a non-Anishinaabe, as somebody visiting the territory, leading a group within a major post-secondary institution, that our relationships are being built in a mutually beneficial, uh, reciprocal, and good-minded way. And I think that's probably what I'm most proud of. And what are no no problem, Ron? What are some of the lessons you've learned in having the chance to interact with so many different types of community members? I think well, there's there's a there's a funny a funny way to contextualize that, which ended up being meaningful, and then I'll give you the real answer. The funny <laughs> thing that was meaningful was when I first went out to Kitty Gansey to start consulting on the activity at the Dare District and the mural and just our relationships and being responsive to community needs. One of the first things, the group of elders, we had an elders, uh, I don't want to say a council meeting, that's not it, but we had an elders gathering in order to help, in order to help us, help guide uh, our, our questions, our process, and where we were going. Uh, one of the first things that they asked me was, Ron, why is there a teepee on that campus? You know, I drove by there, or I heard, I heard somebody drove by there, and there's a teepee outside, and I thought, well, holy heck, I don't know. I've only been here like four or five days. I have no idea why there's a teepee here, but let me find out. And so, you know, through finding out and asking questions, I was able to go back uh, the next time we met with that group and say, well, the answer is quite simple. The students wanted it. The students are a diverse population, so they put it up. But what we did is we looked at that uh, that little bit of tension that that created, and, and we said, well, what can we do with this? You know, what can we learn from it? And so really simply, because I know, you know, we don't have unlimited time, but really simply what we did was we, we talked about how TPs are put up when they're needed and they're taken down when they're, when they're not. And, you know, from a, from a space utilization perspective, what can we do with that within, within our new space? And so that's where this lodge came from, that round structure I talked about that can be put up when we need it and taken down when we don't. And so we took this, this thing that was, con- that was some conflict and a little bit of tens- tension and we turned it into a way to embed indigenous knowledge not from the territory, but surely used within the territory, this idea of using it when you need it and taking it down when you don't, and embedding it into the D.A.R.E. district. And so we, I, I think that we quite turned that conversation into something beautiful. The other thing, the, the bigger answer, I would say, is that the, the thing that I realize that is different in this area is the amount of willingness and, and room 
that folks from here traditionally are willing to make to partner and collaborate with with everybody that surrounds us. Uh, I've worked in a number of different territories and different nations, and and while the Algonquin, in my opinion, identity is very strong, very real, very healthy here, they're very open, in my opinion, to working with people from outside uh, the area, like myself, you know, being an Iroquois from outside. Or uh, when we did the consultation, we asked that, we asked questions, you know, should should the work we're doing only represent uh, Algonquin knowledge, Algonquin communities, Algonquin culture and history? And the answer from across the board was, it, it must be front and center, it must be honored, but we also want to acknowledge those who have come here uh, and exist in our territory. And so that's something that I think is quite beautiful. And in addition to that key relationship, obviously another key relationship, especially with the work you're doing at the college, would be the students and the staff. How have the responses been from the student and the staff to the D.A.R.E. district? Well, it's really interesting. So um, uh, so you can imagine, perhaps, that there was this existing area uh, on, the, on the college campus before that was one story tall, really tired library, you know, I think it was 1950s, maybe 60s, brutalist architecture, old brick, uh, cool in some ways, but really old and tired in others. And um, and it was really interesting now that we have this huge brand new structure and it's full. Every story, every seat, just about every area from open to close is full. And, you know, we kind of wonder where were they before? Uh, and, and as interesting as it is, what matters is that they're there now. This is Moment of Truth with David Moses. We'll be back after the break. Are you ready for the 17th annual? By February 15th with your travel agent or... David Moses, I'm Caroline O'Neill filling in out of the Ottawa studio today. We are joined today with by Ron McCluster, the Executive Director of Truth, Reconciliation and Indigenization at Algonquin College. Thanks for being here with us today, Ron. My pleasure. Ron, before we went to the break, you were talking a bit about the reaction and how students and staff are responding to the space. And obviously, this is something that will be continual. And just for you, your work, you seem very busy. Your work never seems to end. And I saw on Twitter that you were making soup for an indigenization session you had on campus yesterday. Can you talk to us a little bit about how that went? Sure. The soup was fantastic. No. <laughs> uh, well, well, actually, so joking aside, you know, one of the things that comes from uh, the community that I'm from is that when, you know, when you have people coming over and, you know, visitors, you honor them by, by cooking for them. And so, uh, I did that over the weekend, made some traditional, uh, Oneida corn soup. And the reason for that was because we had, um, a two hour meeting, two and a half hour meeting yesterday where we, uh, did our first campus playback, uh, for, uh, the work that we've accomplished relative to this indigenization strategy. So about uh, August 2016, uh, their college gave me an envelope of resources in order to do uh, some of the research that I mentioned before, and that consisted of an um, environmental scan and deep dive into 43 different institutions across five provinces. Uh, that resulted in five different themes, uh, curriculum, art and expression, support services, placemaking, and community responsiveness. Holy smokes, this is all off the top of my head, too. Uh, and um, and that was going to go into our uh, strategic plan uh, for indigenization. And so 
that was one of the that was a playback for us to express, you know, what we learned in that session, but also uh, where we're going. Okay. So, and where I'm you're going to tell you more about that, but I'm not sure if that's detailed enough or not detailed enough. No, no. Um, but where you're going, I know that you also have sessions lined up at your Pembroke campus as well, right? We, we do. We do. What I think is really interesting about the, the work, though, is that mm-hmm. um, this little story that I just told you really represents about half of the work. So what we learned when we did this research, like I say, the 43 institutions across five provinces, we do these five teams, all of that work usually goes into a laundry list of activities, all of it good intentions. I'm not calling that out at all. Uh, but that, us- that work usually goes into a laundry list of activities that's put into a nice, pretty book, and that becomes some kind of a strategy. That's not what we decided to do. We decided that we would use that information um, uh, and, and put it in our back pockets for now. But we also want to turn our attention a little bit to some governance models into the way in which Indigenous people would have developed community cohesion, identified leadership, and then explored uh, – and then explore the way in which that work would be implemented. And so yesterday was about reviewing that research and then reviewing a few of our wampum belts. So as a Haudenosaunee, I talked about um, I talked about our, our Thanksgiving address, then talked about the Churro wampum, then talked about Dish With One Spoon, and then talked about the Hiawatha belt, because a lot of these concepts need to be understood by the folks at the college in order to understand my thinking. And the thinking is that we need to understand indigenous governance models. We need to understand the traditional formation of the way in which we related to our environment before we can start making plans to operationalize things for the future. And so it was a really it was a it was a quick two hours that covered a lot of a lot of material and it was just one of uh, four or five that I'll need to do before okay. we start taking the next steps. Okay. And obviously with it still being towards the beginning of 2019, what does the rest of 2019 look like for you with the work that you'll be doing? It's a very interesting question. I had a debrief for a couple hours with my team, and that's something that we're thinking about. Um, I, I know for sure uh, that we have at least at least three, if not even four more of these sessions to do. This particular session was heavily attended by college leadership. I want to make sure that I have a room full of faculty. I want to make sure that I have a room or two full of students, and then we have other um, campuses to consider. And so while I need to ensure that we touch enough folks with this this particular section of our work, we also need to be turning our attention to getting our hands in the clay. What's really interesting at Algonquin is there's a lot of, uh, well, there's a lot of momentum, but there's a lot of thirst and there's a lot of will. I know that some of the folks that were there yesterday are supportive, are excited, but I also can tell they, they want they want to get into the work. What can I do? Where can I go? What do you need from me? And so uh, I have to put more thinking into that. My team has to put more thinking into that. I have to take that back to our thought leaders and community members because in my perspective, we're at a really unique space. A lot of my, what do you call them, competitors or peers, a lot of the other folks who are leading these files in post-secondary are clamoring or, or fighting or, or looking to have the kind of community institutional support and recognition that we do. We're not doing that anymore. Somehow we have all that. Now it's about getting 
really into the clay and, you know, getting our hands dirty and, and, and maybe not dirty, but you know what I'm trying to say, getting into the work. And so we're, we're, we need to finish these sessions, but I also need to make sure that there's consensus on how we identify the work, how we choose who's going to do the work, how we uh, set targets, uh, metrics, and deliverables for it. That will be defining our next year. Ron Miigwech, thank you so much for taking the time to join us this morning. Oh, right on. I really appreciate the offer. Y'all go. Ron McCluster is the Executive Director of Truth, Reconciliation, and Indigenization at Algonquin College. Next, we'll be hearing Heart of Gold by Midnight Shine. Welcome back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. I'm Caroline O'Neill today, filling in from the Ottawa studio. We were just chatting with Ron McCluster, the Executive Director of Truth, Reconciliation, and Indigenization at Algonquin College. We are now joined by Andrea Auger from First Nations Caring Society, here to talk with us about Thursday's Have a Heart Day. With one of the biggest storms in years about to head our way to the Ottawa area, Have a Heart Day on Parliament Hill will have a few changes this year. But Andrea McGuetch, thanks for joining us, is here to chat with us about what to expect for Thursday. Hi, Carolyn. Hi, David. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I just want to acknowledge that I'm in Ottawa um, on traditional Algonquin territory. And it's really a pleasure to chat with you both about um, Have a Heart Day on Thursday um, on traditional Algonquin territory. And it's really a pleasure to chat with you both about um, Have a Heart Day on Thursday. We're really excited about the celebration despite the storm in Ottawa. It's going to be a big one, as as you just said. Um, so for Have a Heart Day, um, I'm not sure do either of you know what Have a Heart Day is. Have you heard of it? I've actually had the chance, Andrea, to go to Have a Heart Day in 2017, actually. Um, as a journalism student, we had the opportunity to cover that event. But for our listeners who may not be familiar, could you talk a little bit about Have a Heart Day for us? Yes, of course. So Have a Heart Day is celebrated annually. We've been doing it since 2012. And it's a national celebration where people can celebrate equity and fairness for First Nations kids by doing really uplifting things like having Valentine's Day parties, um, baking cookies, um, you know, just doing those things like writing letters to members of parliament and to the prime minister, letting them know um, that they support uh, fairness and justice for First Nations kids who often don't get the same services as other kids get in the country. And you mentioned how um, Valentine's Day celebrations, can you chat about the significance of having Have a Heart Day on Valentine's Day? Yes, of course. So I think, you know, we think about Valentine's Day as a day of love. And um, so I think it's a perfect day to really celebrate First Nations young people because it is all about love. And we really think it should be about fairness and justice for all kids in the country. Um, the original Have a Heart Day celebration in 2012 actually um, happened because we were going to the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal in federal court around that time. So because it was around Valentine's Day, we thought what perfect day then to invite young people to come to Parliament Hill and to read their letters to members of Parliament and to the Prime Minister asking for um, support for First Nations kids. So making sure they have the same opportunities to grow up in their homes, making sure they have the same access to public services like other kids in the country have, and access to safe and comfy schools as well. Andrea, what does fairness and equity for First Nation kids in 2019 look like to you and to the team at First Nations Caring Society? 
Well, for us, it's really about making sure that First Nations kids have the same opportunities as other kids in the country. So we filed um, a human rights complaint in 2007 against the government of Canada for providing less funding to keep First Nations kids safe in their homes and their communities. And so we've been working on that case ever since that time. And in 2016, the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal actually found that the government discriminates against 165,000 First Nations kids by providing less child welfare welfare funding on reserves, as well as not providing the same level of services on reserves, so not implementing what's called Jordan's Principle. So really for us, um, we believe that it's about providing those same kinds of supports to First Nations kids, and that for us would be really what equity and fairness means. Andrea, you mentioned Jordan's principle. For some of our listeners who might not be familiar with the principle, can you talk a little bit about that? So Jordan's principle is a child-first principle that says that children should receive services, First Nations children should receive services when they need them. And so it was named in loving memory of a little boy named Jordan River Anderson. He was born in 1999 in Winnipeg, Manitoba. His home community, Norway House Cree Nation, is a remote community in Manitoba. So, of course, his parents um, had to go to Winnipeg, which is one of the closest urban centers to his community, so that his mother could give birth to him. Um, And because he had complex medical needs, it it made the most sense to, to go to Winnipeg for the care. And so what happened was Jordan had waited two years in hospital having seen a lot of other kids come and go. And the doctor had said, you know, Jordan is is well enough to go and spend um, the rest of his time in a family home. And so um, because of jurisdictional disputes from the province of Manitoba and the federal government, Jordan could not actually go home because of this jurisdictional wrangling over who would pay for his at-home services. Um, The way funding works for First Nations kids is for a lot of their services, actually all of their services, the federal government pays for those services. And if there is inequities, the province typically doesn't top those costs up to make sure that they have um, equity with other kids in the country. And so Jordan sadly passed away in the Winnipeg Hospital in the year 2005, never having seen a family home. And, you know, his family had said, we don't want any other First Nations kids to have to go through this because it's really important for all children to to be where they um, come from, you know, be with their families, be in their communities, and have those ties to their cultures and languages. And so that's when Jordan's Principle was passed in the year 2007. Um, it was passed in the House of Commons, and it basically just says that Children should get the services they need when they need them, uh, regardless where they live. And so that was a key part of the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal ruling in 2016, was for the federal government to fully implement Jordan's principle. And how would the team at the First Nations Caring Society say that the federal government is so far handling Jordan's principle? 
Yeah, so I think we have come quite a long way in terms of Jordan's principle. There's still a lot of work to be done to make sure that all First Nations kids get those services that they need. And not only that, I think it's really about awareness with families, communities, and organizations delivering services to First Nations kids on reserves and other kids throughout the country. Um, because there is still a lot of people who don't know about Jordan's Principle. They don't know if they're eligible to apply for Jordan's Principle. Because it's really about making sure that kids get services. So um, for a long time, the federal government would narrow what was covered under Jordan's Principle. So for a while, it was only um, children with complex medical needs, requiring multiple service providers, um, just a lot of narrowing definitions where we found out later um, through a report, um, commission, not commission, but um, worked on by the, the AFN and others, that Jordan may not have even qualified for Jordan's Principle through the, the narrow definition of the federal government. So because of um, what are called compliance rulings, compliance orders through the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal, um, the federal government has to implement a lot of this stuff in terms of Jordan's principles. So for example, in, in terms of when submitting Jordan's principal cases, the federal government has timelines that they have to work from. So for individual cases, for example, they have 48 hours to make a decision on the case uh, for, for any case, but for urgent situations, they only have 12 hours. People can also submit what are called group requests. So group requests need eight hours. People can also, um, what they don't know, a lot of people don't know, is that they can submit requests for retroactive cases. So because Jordan's principle wasn't being implemented properly for all those years, um, they will fund retroactive cases if families or organizations feel like that First Nations kids weren't getting the services they needed from back dating till 2009. So I think, you know, a lot of children have been helped through Jordan's principle, but I think we really need to look at, you know, all of these things that, uh, things like education, um, recreation services, other areas that aren't just health related, um, because there are a lot of gaps in services for First Nations kids. Andrea, you mentioned awareness. What do you think are some steps that the federal government can take to make families aware of Jordan's principle and if they qualify for the principle? Um, I think really just reaching out through social media, which they have been doing, um, and I know that the Karen Society has been doing a lot of um, awareness building as well. We do presentations throughout the country, and, you know, we have our Karen Society website, which is really great as well. Um, and so I think, yeah, social media is a huge push, I think, and a huge way to reach a variety of audiences, so things like Facebook, Twitter, um, and all those other places where it's easy to kind of get the message out. This is Moment of Truth with David Moses. We'll be back after the break. Welcome back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. I'm Caroline O'Neill filling in out of Ottawa. We are joined today with Andrea Auger from First Nations Caring Society. Andrea, thanks for taking the time to chat with us during what is a very busy week for you and the team. Oh, thanks for having me. 
Um, one of the things that we were talking about, Andrea, at the beginning of this interview was that, unfortunately, it seems like the weather is getting a bit in the way of the rally on Parliament Hill. So can you talk to us about the alternative arrangements that the First Nations Caring Society has come up with? Yeah, so Have a Heart Day is really a day that um, anyone across the country can celebrate. Typically, we have our wonderful day on Parliament Hill. However, due to the weather, we unfortunately had to cancel our Parliament Hill event. But we would definitely welcome people to celebrate in their places of work, in their schools, in their homes, wherever they can celebrate love and fairness for First Nations kids. We encourage people to continue to do things like... um, to write their valentines to members of parliament and to the prime minister, um, asking for fairness for First Nations kids, um, to do things like watch movies. We have a lot of different movies on the Caring Society's website, short films um, that are really educational. Also, the National Film Board has done some incredible videos. We can't make the same mistake twice, um, as well as Hi-Ho, Miss to Hay, which looks at Shannon's dream. So I think there's really a lot that people can do, especially given the weather situation this week here in Ottawa. So, Andrea, you mentioned a few movies from the National Film Board, but you also mentioned some short films. What's the short film you'd suggest? Um, I would say we have um, Jordan's Principal Public Service Announcements. Um, There's a lot of films. Reconciliation Begins With You and Me is a great one. The Seventh Generation Our Ancestors Prayed For is a little bit of a longer film. So it's about, I would say about 20 minutes to half an hour. And it talks about a little, it touches on residential schools as well as um, ties it to some of the Caring Society's campaigns. And so we mentioned that the Rally on the Hill is seen as one of the big events of Have a Heart Day. But as you said, people can go to so many different rallies, be it at school or at the workplace. And there are rallies happening across the country this week and on Thursday, correct? Yes, that is correct. And um, if anyone is interested in seeing if there is something taking place in their community, the Caring Society has a map on their Caring Society website for Have a Heart Day, fncaringsociety.com. And you can just head under uh, what you can do under events, and you'll find Have a Heart Day and the interactive map. And regardless of whether or not people will be on the Hill tomorrow, the message will still be made clear to public officials in this country that, as you said, there's more work that needs to be done. What are some of the other messages that you hope the public officials take from Have a Heart Day 2019? Well, one of the big things, I think, is the Spirit Bear Plan. So the Caring Society... Um, created the Spare Bear Plan back in 2017, I believe it was, to make sure that we look at those inequities for First Nations kids, not just in terms of child welfare, but looking at, for example, costing out all the shortfalls for First Nations children. Because one of the things that we look at with child welfare is you could have a really great child welfare system. It could be perfect, completely funded to suit the needs of kids. But what we're what we find in child welfare is it's not just about child welfare. Children are so much more. They have they have basic needs. And a lot of basic needs, for example, in communities aren't being met. So we've heard of, you know, well water advisories across across the country. For, for in First Nations communities, some going as long and longer than twenty years. Um, And I think, you know, that kind of stuff has become really normalized in our society, which is something we really want um, the parliamentary budget officer 
to cost out. We want to see what those shortfalls are for First Nations kids across all of those services. The Spirit Bear Plan also calls on the federal government to fully implement the tribunal's rulings, as well as look within their own department to see what kinds of ideologies have really um, got us to this place where we are. Because we know the Department of Indigenous Services has been around for a really long time, um, you know, heading up the residential school, um, the assimilation of First Nations people in Canada, and all of these things. So I think, you know, making sure that they kind of move away from those colonial ideologies and policies that um, have put First Nations young people in this situation where they're not receiving services. This is Moment of Truth with David Moses. Andrea, you shared that musicians who are in great support of the First Nations Caring Society, and we have a song by one of those musicians. It's Picture of You by Amanda Rayom. Welcome back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. I'm Caroline O'Neill filling in from the Ottawa studio. We are joined by Andrea Auger from the First Nations Caring Society. Andrea, thanks for taking the time to chat with us. I'm glad to be here. Andrea, a key part of Have a Heart Day is the youth participation. So to all of the youth who are gearing up for Have a Heart Day, whether it's their first Have a Heart Day or second, or maybe they're not sure about participating, why is it important for them to get their message out? Well, I think children, child and youth participation in matters that affect them and matters um, that affect other children in the country are really um, important. So I think making sure that children and youth have the venue and the opportunities to participate in meaningful change is something that we're really passionate about. So when the Truth and Reconciliation Commission released its 94 calls to action, it didn't just call on adults and older people to participate in making a difference. It also called on children and young people because we know in Indigenous communities, there's um, a whole host of knowledges that are important, ranging right from birth all the way till death. And that includes children and young people because, you know, we know that the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child values the voices of young people, and we know that it's very important. And not to mention we've learned so many different lessons from children and young people around these issues of reconciliation, how to do these things in a really good way and a fun way because it should be uplifting. So as somebody who's had the chance to participate and have a hard day and especially work with the youth, what are some lessons that lessons that you've taken from the young people? Um, I always share the story. Well, not a story, but I guess kind of I ask people, you know, how many how many people know a child or young person who talks about it's not fair? And I, I don't know about you, but I have a young son and I, I feel like that's going to come out of his mouth um, sooner than later. And I think that's really one of the things that's amazing about young people is they already know what is fair, what fairness is and ways to celebrate. And I don't think it's complicated. And that's one of the things that I've taken from a lot of these amazing young people is it's really not complicated. We shouldn't be putting um, equity and fairness. We shouldn't be making that complicated because as adults, I think we have a really um, easy time making things complicated when they really don't need to be. And to the educators who will be at the event with their students, what are some of the lessons that you hope they're able to take from Have a Heart Day? Well, I think just learn from your students. Um, Students are really great teachers. I think um, I'm also an educator, 
And um, I've never taught, but I, I do a lot of training in my current position. And to me, I just never assume that I know everything because I definitely have a lot of learning to do, and it's always a process. And a lot of educators already know that students are the greatest teachers. Um, and I think for educators that maybe hesitate to kind of get into these kinds of issues, I'd welcome them to check out um, the Caring Society's website because we have a lot of really hands-on ways that teachers and other people in the country can get involved in reconciliation for First Nations kids. And so speaking of that, a lot of teachers and students come out of Papa Heart Day inspired and ready to do more. So for those people come Thursday who are ready to take the next step, what are some things you can suggest that they can do to get the ball rolling? Yeah, so Have a Heart Day really starts off our year in a really amazing way. But the Caring Society has created um, a host of other events that people can become involved in. So we have um, Bear Witness Day on May 10th. The idea is to bring your teddy bear to your workplace um, and raise awareness about Jordan's principle. And, I mean, I definitely have some teddy bears kicking around my house, so we all participate. And it's a really fun way to get the word out about Jordan's principle and have a hands-on learning opportunity. There's also Honoring Memories, Planting Dreams in May and June every year, which the idea is to plant a heart garden um, to honor those who pass to the residential school system or to those who are survivors of the residential school system. So really just to honor their memory and learn more about the legacy of residential schools. We also have a newer event um, that happens every September and October called School is a Time for Dreams. And this is a day to, um, or it can be two months of learning about Shannon's dream and Shannon Kustachin of Attawapiskat First Nation and why she felt it was important for all children to have the opportunity to dream and to have access to safe and comfy schools. And we were talking a bit off air, and as you mentioned, Have a Heart Day isn't just for students, it isn't just for educators, it's for everyone. So to all of those other people out there who are aware with Have a Heart Day, what do you kind of suggest for them to do to get involved and to move forward and be active in reconciliation? Well, the events I just talked about are really for anyone to participate in. And we've had um, people, a range of people, doctors, lawyers, um, people in business who have really stepped up and participated in a lot of this kind of stuff, just to name a few. Um, people across the country and in other countries have participated in reconciliation. The Caring Society also has seven free ways to make a difference on our website where people can, it takes two minutes to sign up to support things like Jordan's Principle, um, be a witness to the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal and support, you know, things like Shannon's dream. So it's really a matter of, I think, just taking a look and seeing, you know, where you find yourself in reconciliation. And the Caring Society is always open to questions from anyone who who isn't sure or maybe just wants a little more guidance. And with those seven ways to make a difference, is there one that kind of sticks out to you as a great first step? Um, I think supporting Spirit Bear and the Spirit Bear Plan would be a really good one, um, or even supporting something like Jordan's Principle or Shannon's Dream. Andrea, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. Have a heart day is this Thursday. Yes, well, thanks so much, and happy have a heart day to everyone out there. Miigwech, thank you for joining us. Have a great day. That was Andrea OJ from the First Nations Caring Society with Have a Heart Day this Thursday. Moment of Truth is hosted by David Moses. He'll be back tomorrow. I also want to say Nawe, Miigwech, Wanashi, and thank you to all of the team who make Moment of Truth happen. 
In Toronto, that's David Moses, Kathy Sabokin, Andrew St. Germain, Bruce Barber, and Janet Lamb. And in Ottawa, that's Aidan Wolf, Sean Malley, and Jill Kennedy. We'll be ending with Morning Keeps Coming Back by July Talk, another supporter of First Nations Caring Society.